0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Today we'll look at the passage from Deuteronomy, and it's helpful both in general and for understanding our passage in particular to know the, the background story of Deuteronomy, what's what's happening here uh, in the story of Deuteronomy. You might recall that uh, Moses will, will die soon. They're in what's called the plains of Moab, just on the other side of the River Jordan from the Promised Land, and God told Moses 40 years ago that he would end up here and not be able to cross the other side and see the promised land. Uh, and before they get there, he will die. So this is Moses' sort of farewell message um, right there on the other side of the river just prior to Joshua taking charge uh, to lead them uh, in conquest over Jericho. And so me- Moses here is uh, repeating the law that he gave at Sinai. And giving them final instructions and exhortations uh, for Israel to stay true to God, to continue to stay true to God. And there's also an anticipated concern about his mantle of leadership. Uh, Up to this point, Israel has depended on Moses alone for his leadership. Uh, and uh, his mediation also between God and Israel, and Israel and God, that God speaks to Israel through Moses, and uh, Israel speaks back to God through through Moses. For about 40 years, this has been going on. And the office that Moses serves in is what's called a prophet. What does this mean? I mean, this is a, a word that you're familiar with, but what does this mean exactly to be a prophet? Prophets were chosen, or you could say ordained by God himself, to be his mouthpiece of revelation. So it's a speaking role. That's why in our passage today from Deuteronomy, you hear that word over and over again, speak or voice or things like it, to hear or listen. And uh, as such, the prophet is in a sort of direct relationship with God, Uh, and when the prophet speaks... It's as if God is speaking himself. That's why the prophets often say, Thus saith the Lord. And uh, yes, prophecy is often foretelling. When you hear about a prophet, that's probably the thing that comes to your mind, that they're able to predict the future. And although that's true, um, the prophet's role also includes what's called forthtelling to tell it forth, meaning to speak authority to the people of Israel for their day. And sometimes what they're saying that has a sort of immediate application will have a sort of double meaning for the future, which we realize in retrospect, but it's not all just predicting future, that the prophet, uh, prophet of God to Israel, at least, uh, is someone who speaks to them directly uh, with authority for their day. And this usually is in the form of warning or admonition, a call to repentance, And their primary concern is with covenant faithfulness, the agreement made between God and Israel. And they're also uh, often providing hope, despite all the judgment and the call to repentance, there's hope for the coming age of a messianic kingdom, the king to come. And so in this sense, the prophet's a leader. Now, that doesn't always mean that the people accept the prophet's leadership. As a matter of fact, sometimes they don't. But still, they're a leader, uh, leading God's people and speaking with authority. And this theme of prophets or prophecy is a minor topic in Deuteronomy. Yes, there is the repetition of the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that Moses gave in Exodus and Leviticus. But there's, also, there are other, there's other content, too. And one is about prophets. And the flip side of the coin is warnings about false prophets. You can consider two other passages beside the one we have today in Deuteronomy, which address the topic of false prophets. Um, the first one is in Deuteronomy 13, where uh, Moses speaks of prophets who will come from the ranks of Israel itself and will point them astray to other gods. And God says, do not listen to those false prophets. Actually, those prophets need to die. And then, uh, right before our passage today, uh, at the beginning of, or earlier in chapter 18, uh, on the other hand, just as in chapter 13, Moses is talking about false prophets that will come out of Israel, in chapter 18, just before our passage, which is helpful for understanding what we have Moses talks about uh, prophets who will come from the nations. And this is what he says. When you come into the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable, abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this." And so you see here is a concern with the temptation that's awaiting them in Canaan, um, which explains the conquest that God wants to uh, prevent the sort of contamination of the nation of Israel with these abominable practices of those nations, which includes things like magical practices of divination or fortune-telling, nasty things like necromancers who deal with the dead. Uh, And this could easily be confused with prophecy— could easily be seen to uh, seem to be people who are speaking with authority. And they're being told, this is going to happen. You are, you are going to confront such people. So this anticipates, uh, this passage anticipates the instructions that we have in the Deuteronomy passage today. If you have your bulletin, you can look at it. Or if you want to look in a Bible, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, beginning at the 15th verse. <clears throat> Let's take a look at our passage once again, and consider all that I said uh, with uh, Deuteronomy chapter 13 and the verses immediately prior to it in chapter 18. Verse 15 is an introduction to the concept of a new prophet like Moses, which is important. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen." This is uh, reassuring to the people of Israel that they won't be left alone. Another prophet or line of prophets like Moses is to come. And here's an important point, that their prophet will come from among them and not from the nations, but from Israel, which you know, helps them understand the point about those sorcerers and uh, magicians and diviners and necromancers from the nations your prophet will come from among your ranks, from Israel. Verse 16 is a quote uh, of Israel from Exodus, proving their desire for such a mediating prophet, someone who stands between them and God. God, uh, uh, Moses says, Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb, meaning Mount Sinai, on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The chosen prophet was the only one who was allowed to to be uh, in Mount Sinai. Uh, Israel couldn't even touch the mountain. They need that mediator. And the prophet is standing in that role. And then in verses 17 through 20, Whereas right before we had a quote of Israel demanding such a person, here we have God in 17 through 20 confirming that desire. And the Lord said to me, said to Moses, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die and so here, in verse twenty of an anticipation again of uh, false prophets to come in verse twenty one uh, provides a sort of anticipated rhetorical question about those false prophets. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? And finally, verse 22 is a test for discerning whether or not the prophet is the true chosen prophet of God or someone not worth listening to. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has, not, has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. You need not be afraid of uh, even the person who's, who appears to be, uh, you know, a fortune teller or a diviner. Someone who's playing with the dead. Do not be afraid of them. They are not speaking on God's behalf. And you, you can note that this is not the only time that God's people are confronted with false prophecy. Even earlier in Moses' life, when he's in Egypt at Pharaoh's court, remember he uh, dukes it out with the magicians uh, in Egypt. Or consider Elijah's battle of prophecy between him and the prophets of Baal. Or even in the New Testament. Do you remember how Galatians begins? Where Paul says, even if we, even if I, Paul, come back, or an angel from heaven should come and preach To you, a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Or you might recall what he says to Peter, the people will have, the time is coming where they have itching ears and they're going to raise up for themselves teachers who will say to them what they want to hear. Or finally, consider Jesus himself who said to his disciples, some will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. In my own life, I've dealt plenty with quote-unquote false prophecy. In our day, uh, the subtlety of dangerous teaching is quite difficult to discern. There are many things that sound good out there in the world. Actually, most false false prophecy says what people want to hear, just as Paul explained to Timothy Uh, it speaks to our deepest hopes and longings and opinions about life. As if we're in a sort of echo chamber or looking in the mirror, the prophets are often parroting back to us the things that we would say, and we nod our heads and say, yeah, that that sounds right. I'm going to give you one example from my own life where I confronted false prophecy, and I'm just sort of giving you a a picture of what this looks like for you to to help you see it, okay? And the place uh, where uh, I recently dealt with this a few years ago, uh, uh, it, what I'm about to say is not meant to decry at this entire institution. There are certain people or institutions and places who say and do things that are in error, and that doesn't mean wholesale that that person is wrong or that institution is wrong, okay? Well, I used to do yoga for t- about 20 years, starting in high school until quite recently, until about moving here. Um, and I primarily did a form of yoga called hot yoga, which is a sort of like more athletic and masculine version where they crank up the heat to 110 degrees, like you're in Phoenix doing yoga. And I, you know, I was doing it because primarily I just didn't want to gain weight and I have back problems. But when you go there, this isn't always true, but sometimes. The teachers, as they're giving you the sort of physical uh, descriptions of what you need to do, also intersperse nuggets of wisdom and philosophy. But usually it's an American housewife who has a part-time job, has never spent time in India, or you know, she's only known about Hinduism for six months. Uh, and that's the person telling you something that they think is just like the most important thing in the world. Just consider one of my teachers in South Carolina who used to end the practice by saying, The light in me honors the light in you. And the first time I heard this, I almost fell over. uh, Because I wanted to say, the darkness in me dishonors the darkness in you. (laughs) But everybody there would have thought I was a pessimistic, uh, you know, weirdo. Not worth paying attention to. But, you know, as a Christian theologian, the more and more I I was doing this and hearing that, I just couldn't do it anymore because it was a distraction. I mean, some of you do yoga, that's fine. You know, keep doing it. For me, I just couldn't. But the thing is, it's not just yoga. I mean, a lot of the sort of self help industry, new age, Eastern mysticism, uh, you know, tips about business practices that are there at uh, Books a Million and and Barnes and Noble, uh, all these things often um, are saying the same thing. You know, something like when all else fails, look inside of yourself for wisdom, to find the answers. But this is terrible advice. This this is terrible advice in general, but especially for someone who's afflicted. You know, if you've got depression, which I once suffered with, and someone tells you to look inside of yourself, that's a terrible place to go. You know, you want to find the answer somewhere else. And this is made all the worse when it finds its way in the church. And it does. This kind of thinking has found its way into the church. Uh, The same thought can be repackaged as "quote unquote" original blessing versus original sin. I don't want to talk about original sin. I want to talk about original blessing. Give me a break. Or typically, uh, we're all, when it comes to the theology of salvation, are sort of synergists, which means, you know, you do your part the most and best that you can, and God will pick up the slack. You do the sort of 99 point whatever percent, and God will do the 0.5, you know? God helps those who help themselves is the sort of the the, the phrase that goes along with it. And that is a cruel teaching. God helps those who help themselves is a cruel teaching. It's just like the light in me honors the light in you. If you've ever said anything like that before, stop speaking this false prophecy. Take it out of your cliché repertoire. Today, uh, the, the thing that I most want to say to you, my main point th- is this. Here, here's, here's the ultimate solution to our problem of false prophecy, both for Israel uh, in the ranks of their own people or amidst the nations, and for us who are in a sort of soup of uh, popular culture, Uh, in political false prophecy all the time. Here's the bottom line. Here's the good news, and you probably know what I'm going to say. Jesus Christ is the ultimate capital P prophet, the one that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, You've probably heard of Jesus described as prophet, priest, and king, that he's the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest, and the ultimate king. Have you heard that before? What I'm about to say to you, I I got from Gerald Bray. I don't take credit for this. That Jesus, not only is he the ultimate high priest, he's also the sacrifice. And not only is he the king of the universe, he's also the kingdom. Remember when he came, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not only was he the king, but where he is, there is the kingdom. And to that end... He's not only the capital P prophet, he's also the prophecy. He's the word. He's the message. He's the good news. He's the only message worth listening to at the end of the day, after all these other false prophets. And if you think I'm making this stuff up, it's confirmed throughout the New Testament. John the Baptist makes it clear that Jesus Christ was the prophet that Moses spoke of in John chapter 1. And this is a sentiment that Peter echoes in Acts chapter 3. And also Stephen in his sermon before he's stoned in Acts chapter 7. He says, Jesus is that prophet that Moses spoke of, and that prophet you've killed. And then they don't like hearing that, and they stone him. And then God the Father confirms this when he says, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. There are messages that you've heard all your life that have had a profound effect on you, whether you know this or not. I'm actually convinced that this is one of our biggest problems in modern life, that all the things that we hear uh, in popular culture, in day-to-day conversation, in social media, all the white noise of life uh, is, is driving us. These cliches are driving us more than any other philosophies. Actually, the biblical worldview is the minority report, all these other things that we're hearing is the majority report. And our driving philosophies are usually boiled down to sort of a bumper sticker. You know, don't worry, be happy. Coexist. 26.2, which, you know, is the length of a marathon. What it's basically saying is, I'm better than you <laughs> because I've completed a marathon and you haven't. If you find a bumper sticker that says 0.0 and buy it for me, I'll put it on the back of my car. Well, who has lied to you? And what lies have they told you? What things sound nice and true, but they're actually oppressing you at best or leading you astray at worst? Maybe someone has convinced you that you're not worthy of love. Someone has convinced you you're beyond repair and hopeless. Maybe it was in childhood or at work. Uh, Maybe it's in your family now. Maybe it was in the church. Andrew has a clergy team reading a, a book right now. It's a collection of essays by a man named Alan Stibbs, who is an evangelical clergyman in England in the 20th century. And early in the book, the editor who collected the essays explaining Stibbs' life said he spent uh, time in seminary at Ca- in Cambridge, where even in the early, early 20th century, it was confronted by uh, modern. Uh, heterodox uh, theology that uh, was hard for him to bear. And this is what he has to say. At Cambridge, God allowed me to prove that his word is trustworthy. I was led quite unexpectedly to read modern theology, only to be told by some that there was no place in the ranks of theological scholarship for those who would not accept modern critical theories with regard to the Bible. But I was told by God of the three men to whom Nebuchadnezzar said that there was no place in his kingdom for any who would not bow down to his image. And the same God who kept them in Babylon kept me in Cambridge. I learned from experience in the place of trial that God's word is to be trusted rather than men's. I know whom I have believed. Friends, trust God's word rather than men's. Know whom you believe. And what does his prophecy tell you? What does Jesus Christ's prophecy tell you? He's telling you, I have died for you and for your sinfulness. And I rose that you might have everlasting life. I am your king and my kingdom will